and welcome to the American Gunner Podcast. I am your host, Aaron Laranetto, and let's get stuck in. Welcome everybody new to the podcast as well as those who listened to episode one. If you did, I really appreciate it. You know, it means the world. And I want you guys to get involved as well. You know, let me know what you guys want to talk about and hear going forward uh, when it comes to the World Cup and also when it comes to Arsenal and the season coming up because, you know, as Gunners, you know, we got a lot to talk about with the new manager and everything. So, um, yeah, let's get stuck into today's uh, episode and topics. Um, today we're going to be talking about Spain versus Russia in the round of 16 in the World Cup, as well as the Brazil-Mexico match, which took place on Monday. Coming into this game, Spain were the group winners from Group B, which contained Portugal, Morocco, and Iran. And then Russia were runners-up in Group A, which contained Uruguay, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt. And I think Russia surprised a lot of people in the group stage. Um, I had heard even interviews from Russian fans prior to the World Cup that this was one of the worst Russian sides um, that they have produced in a long time. And so a lot of Russians, you know, they weren't very hopeful of this World Cup. But, you know, they really impressed a lot of people in the group stage. That first that first game, I remember they playing against Saudi Arabia, and they absolutely tore them to shreds um, winning that game 5-0. And they played some good stuff. So I give them a lot of credit again through that Group A because um, Egypt, you know, not a bad side. They have Mohamed Elneny, who's an Arsenal player. Obviously, the the breakout star of the season, Mohamed Salah. So it wasn't an easy figure for um, Russia to get out of that group, so they definitely deserve credit. And then on Spain's side, you know, that first game against Portugal, they they did some things really well in that first half and in the second half as well, but they also made a lot of mistakes and let Portugal back into the game. And then the rest of the their two group games, you know, they weren't really spectacular. So we're going to touch on this game in particular because – uh, obviously, it was a huge result, you know, Russia getting that upset. And there's a lot of factors that I think played into that that need addressing. So like Spain would have known, Russia came out with a game plan to stay organized, get a lot of men behind the ball, and try to really frustrate Spain. And this really worked. I mean, Spain's first goal in the game, it came from a set piece that was crossed in by Marco Asensio to the back post. And there was a tussle in the box between Sergio Ramos and Ignis Savic, I think is how you say his name. And they tussled each other to the ground, and then the ball deflected into Ignis Shevich, and it wrong-footed Akinfeyev in the net. So this was uh, Spain's opening goal. I mean, it wasn't even scored by Spain. And then after this, you know, Spain started to take control of the game. It was the, really the perfect start for them. But they really didn't do much with the ball. You know, they were their passing was sp- slow. They couldn't find spaces in behind that Russian midfield. And... It was just lethargic. It was almost as if Spain thought they were playing in a, you know, a training match. It seemed like they were very content just holding on to the ball. But I want to give Russia a lot of credit because this is no easy feat to, you know, make Spain uncomfortable in a game like this. Because, you know, their tactics were very impressive from the coach. Um, they were disciplined. They were, um, you know, making clearances, their defenders. And, you know, all their players were closing down the ball extremely quickly, making tackles getting blocks, and they were doing everything that they could to stop Spain. 
And by doing so, Russia was able to get a counterattack and get a corner. And during this corner, the ball is whipped into the box, and Gerard Piquet lifted his arm into the air. And his arm made contact with the ball, and the referee called a penalty. And for me, you know, it's a blatant penalty. You can't put your arm up over your head in the box as a defender. The ref's going to call that every time. So this resulted in Juba taking a penalty against David De Gea, who hasn't had the greatest of tournaments. You know, for Manchester United, he plays out of his skin. But for Spain, you know, there was some criticism back home. And Juba was able to knock home this penalty to make it 1-1. And this really, you know, upsetted Spain's coach because I think, you know, he thought they had that they had controlled the game. And for Russia to get a goal like that, I think it truly frustrated them. So the game went into halftime at 1-1. One thing I really want to talk about in this game was the fact that Spain broke the record for the most passes in a World Cup match. They completed 1,029 passes compared to only Russia's 202. But I'm not bringing this statistic up to say that this was something really impressive because, you know, you might look at those stats right there and be like, oh, wow, Spain, like, they totally outplayed Russia, but they really didn't do anything with the ball. Their buildup was extremely slow. They did not penetrate, and they didn't find their attacking players enough in the pockets. You know, I think when you look at it into perspective, Sergio Ramos for Spain had the most passes. He had 141 passes. And this is a problem, in my opinion, because if you're Spain, you want your creative players on the ball, the players like Isco, David Silva, Iniesta when he came on. You want these type of players on the ball, you know, creating the game for you and dictating the tempo. And this wasn't the case for Spain in this game. And one thing I really want to stress is what is important is what you do when you have the ball. And it doesn't matter how long you have the ball. It matters what you do when you have it. And I think, you know, you look at the Spain side of 2010. Yes, they kept the ball for long periods of time. But by doing so, they had a clear game plan and philosophy with that. You know, they would tire out the opposition, and they were creative when they had the ball. They would, they had flair players like David Villa, Iniesta, you know, Xavi Busquets. These are, you know, tricky midfielders that are extremely technical with the ball, and they penetrate the lines. I think if you look at this Spain team, you know, they were their passing was extremely slow in the group stages. It was lethargic. It lacked a lot of urgency. And one thing I want to touch on is this evolution of Tiki Taka. I think you're seeing now with Spain that there's an evolution. And one thing I want to point out is Guardiola, who, you know, brought Tiki Taka to Barca when Messi was there, because obviously he didn't create Tiki Taka. That goes back to Johan Cruyff and all those type of players. But Guardiola was the man with Messi that made that famous side with Xavi, Busquets, and Iniesta truly famous. And I think if you look at what he's done at Man City with Tiki Taka, it's different. Yes, they keep the ball for long periods of time, and they try to tire out the opposition by doing so. But when they have the chance they attack and when they attack they attack with pace and numbers and they exploit wide areas you think you think of guys like Leroy Sané, Raheem Sterling you know these are fast players who you know can expose defenses in the in the matter of a split second so i think that Tiki Taka is slowly starting to change it's still very effective if you can do it but you have to do it properly because i think when it comes to Spain in this world cup there was an issue not with the style the style is not the issue the problem was the delivery of the style, and I think this style and this tiki-taka philosophy can be done properly, but you need the right coach, you need the right tactics, and you need the right players. And one thing I think needs addressing without a doubt is why was Andres Iniesta left on the bench for this game? 
You know, prior to this game, he had started 33 of 34 games in Spain's last nine major tournaments. You know, this is a guy who knows Spain better than anybody in that kind of style. So for Hidero to change that in the knockout rounds, out of nowhere really, I don't really see what the point of that was. And his change definitely backfired. You know, Spain were a mishmash of ideas until Iniesta came on. And you saw when he came on in the 67th minute that there was this injection of creativity and flair. And so for me, you know, that that is a decision that definitely backfired and one that cost them the result by the end of the game. And I also want to touch on Diego Costa's inclusion because I, I really like the way Diego Costa plays. You know, his aggressive, bullish, you know, he's an old school number nine. You know, he really likes to get into tussles with center backs. He's a, you know, non, no-nonsense number nine, proper number nine. But he was playing up front for the Spain team, and they never gave him service, so they never found his feet. If you're going to have a player like this in your team, you got to utilize him or else it's just a waste. You know, if Spain didn't want to use him, they were better off putting in another midfielder or using Iago Aspas. Because if you're not going to use a player like that, it's just a total waste. So for me, if you're going to play a player like Diego Costa, you have to utilize him because if not, it's a complete waste. But then brings the question, if Spain's game plan was to pass Russia to death, why wasn't the pass master and magical Andres Iniesta playing from the start? That is a question I want to ask Hiretto. And, you know, I think, you know, Spain's failure in this World Cup goes all the way back to before the tournament started, yes. Because Hiretto is a coach that did not feel deeply for this style that had made Spain famous over the past decade. This is a style that Lopetegui had inherited and then implemented his own ideas with. And, you know, he took the Spanish side through their qualification. And all the players, all the staff, you know, they were all integrated. And everybody was comfortable. And so when Lopetegui took that job at Real Madrid, you know, he was still committed to winning the World Cup with Spain. Nothing had changed. The only thing that changed was that he wasn't going to be the coach after the World Cup. But the president of the Spanish FA, for me, you know, he had way too much pride in this sacking. You know, he, he put himself before the collective good of the Spanish team. And, you know, I can see why he was upset. You know, he felt like he was taken advantage of by Real Madrid and Lopetegui. But, you know, for me, Spain's failure in this World Cup goes directly back to that decision to sack Lopetegui. So Russia would end up winning this game in penalties. And, you know, kudos to Russia. They totally deserved it. You know, Spain didn't have that hunger, desire um, to really play with that intensity from the first whistle to the last. So, you know, congratulations to Russia. You know, a lot of people in their country, you know, they didn't really believe in this side. But, you know, they're proving a lot of people wrong, including myself. So I'm really happy for them as the host nation. And they've been great hosts. So, you know, hopefully they'll have a great game against Croatia in the, in the quarterfinals. Um, one thing I want to speak about now is, you know, after this game, Andres Iniesta came out and retired from international football. And for me, you know, it was a very sad moment because Iniesta is a guy that I've looked up to in my personal playing career um, as a player that, you know, I idolize. And so for him to retire, I just want to play, pay a, a tr little tribute to him. This is a guy that, you know, has played for Spain through thick and thin. And, you know, at the age of 34, um, you know, he, with 131 caps and 13 goals for Spain, I think a lot of us remember, you know, probably his best moment in that Spain shirt, without a doubt, would have to be the 2010 World Cup where he scored the winning goal. Um, 
you could add to that the Euros in 2008 and 2012. He was monumental in that. And it's going to be sad not to see this little magician anymore playing for both Spain or Barcelona. Um, I wish him nothing but the best playing in Japan. And hopefully he can uh, you know, share his magic over there and help the game grow in Japan. So now I want to transition into that Brazil versus Mexico game. And like I said in the first episode, for those of you who don't know, Whenever the United States is not playing in a tournament, I do support Brazil because my dad is from there. I'm a dual citizen. So I follow Brazilian football um, intently, especially when the national team is playing. Um, and this was a game, you know, I was looking forward to the night before I, you know, was buzzing to wake up. And it being against Mexico as an American and an American soccer supporter as well, you know, I despise Mexico. Um, not as a nation. I think it's a beautiful nation. I was there when March for spring break. In Cancun and I think it's actually one of the most beautiful countries I've been to but you know footballing wise United States doesn't like you know obviously Mexico because there are rivals and I know Brazil as well doesn't like Mexico when it comes to football and and before this game started you know there was a lot of talk in the press a few players came out from Mexico speaking about Neymar and his antics and how you know, now that we have VAR in the game, that they should watch out for his diving because he likes to exaggerate all these things. So there was a lot of, you know, build up to this game and a lot of um, tension kind of between the Mexican players and Neymar. And that was definitely something to look out for um, when the game got started. So Brazil started in what was essentially, you know, their traditional 4 2 3 1 formation under Tite. Um, it was a 4 3 3 at times, it interchanged between that. But, um, you know, in goal was Alisson, who I think's had a great tournament. Fagner, who had to come in for Danilo, who still plays in Brazil at Corinthians. Thiago Silva and Miranda, that uh, Brazilian center back pairing is very solid in my opinion. Um, Felipe Luis came in at left back for the injured Marcelo. He picked up a knock against Serbia. And then Casimiro playing that six. You know, for me, he's one of the best in that in that role in world football. And then Paulinho, kind of that more box-to-box role. And then Coutinho kind of playing as that free number 10 to create for the attacking players. William was playing on the right side. Gabriel Jesus playing up top with Neymar on that famous left wing. The last time Brazil played Mexico that I can remember in a competitive match goes back to the 2014 World Cup in the group stage where Guillermo Ochoa really made his name in world football. I remember he had that amazing game where he had so many saves. Brazil you know, created so many chances, but they couldn't score. Ochoa was just outstanding in that game. And I think when it comes to playing against Mexico for Brazil, I always feel like Mexico really provide a really stern test for them. Um, you know, the Mexican fans and their players and their their analysts, they're all very confident of, you know, Mexican football, which for me is a bit bizarre because they haven't really won anything on the international level, level you know, the world stage. I mean, they've won things within North America, but um, they've never really won anything in the world stage. Obviously, they've never won a World Cup. So I just find that funny sometimes. And I mean, that one Fox analyst, I forget his name. He's the Mexican guy. Um, he played for Mexico. He um, He's very confident in this Mexico side. You know, he was very confident that Mexico was going to win this game. And I was just, you know, laughing to myself at home. Like, you know, this guy is a bit of a joke in my opinion. And before this game, the Mexican press was really hyping up this idea of the Quinto Partido, which means the fifth game in Spanish, which is essentially the idea of progressing past the round of 16 because this has something this is something that you know Mexican football has failed at 
in each of the past seven World Cups. You know, this has become a painful national obsession for Mexico and uh, Mexican national team fans. And, you know, this is a generation of Mexico Mexican players that I think does have potential. I mean, you look across the, the midfield, you know, two solid midfielders, Guardado and uh, Herrero. Herrera, my fault. Um, and then you have Herving Lozano, who's a breakout star in the Eredivisie this season. You have a recognized um, striker at the world stage in Chicharito. And then you have Carlos Vea, who's played for Arsenal. He's played for Real Sociedad, and um, now he's playing for LAFC. But this is definitely a Mexican side that can hurt teams. I think you look in the group stage, obviously they have that really big result against Germany, which shocked everybody. Um and then, you know, they came and they did their thing against South Korea, um, you know, fair play. They got the result. But then against Sweden, they, you know, they got their asses handed to them in a 3-0 defeat. So I was pretty confident going into this game that Brazil was going to have enough to beat them, but I knew it was definitely going to be a, a, a tough game at the same time. So coming into this game, Brazil started pretty slowly in the first half, which was frustrating for me to watch. Um, you know, during that first 25 minutes, I think Brazil really failed to impress and Mexico definitely had the better of play, and they even created a few good chances. Um, you know, I remember down that left-hand side from Mexico and down Brazil's right side, Lozano was causing Fagner some issues. And, um, you know, they Mexico definitely had the better of play during that first 25, and I think this was because of me- the the tactics implemented by Osorio for Mexico. He, You could see in the goal kicks and even in just general play that Mexico was pressing very highly. And they were playing with an intensity and defending with an intensity. And this was evident to everybody watching. And, you know, I think for the first 25, 30 minutes, this tactic really paid off because Brazil was struggling to create any kind of chances. But, you know, after the 30-minute mark, Brazil started growing in confidence. And I think the Mexican players got tired from this pressing. And because of this, Brazil was able to create a few good chances by the end of the first half. I remember a play where Neymar uh, used a fake shot and uh, faked out two defenders and then had a shot saved by Ochoa and another play where Jesus had taken the ball in the box and took a shot with his left foot, but it was comfortable for Ochoa. But you could tell that there were things opening up within that first half. After that first 25 minutes, that was encouraging for Brazil. And so I knew going into halftime that if Tite could tell his team, you know, keep keep playing fast, keep playing quick, keep, uh, you know, finding Neymar, William. Coutinho, these type of players, that they were going to eventually find the opening goal. And this ended up being the case. Like I said, Brazil were really starting to go through the gears at this point. Um, And they started right in the second half where they left off at the end of the first. Um, And this is, for me, where William really took over the game. You know, this is a player who Brazil are really going to need to step up if Brazil are going to win this World Cup. You know, this is a player who plays week in and week out for Chelsea at the very highest level and is a star. And I think this guy is honestly one of the best wingers in the world when he's on it. Because you look at this guy's dribbling ability and speed, his first few few steps for me is right up there with the quickest in the world. And, you know, he started breezing by these Mexico players like they were cones. I mean, you know, his pace, his pace was electrifying. And what also impressed me was his stamina. I mean, he was taking the ball and running class player 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 like non-stop and in this heat it was a very hot game I believe it was in the 90s you know for him to have that much stamina in the tank is was really impressive and so the goal for Brazil came from a combination with him 
and Neymar. Neymar cut inside and had dribbled by a few Mexican players, and then he had backheeled a delicious pass right into Williams' path, who took his first touch into the box, straight past the Mexican defender, and then took what was like a left-footed shot slash cross. For me, it was more of a shot, but it was going wide, but luckily Neymar had continued his run and was able to tap in the opening goal of the game. And, you know, it was a beautiful goal by Brazil. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. Brazil's second goal came later in that second half towards the end of the game. Um, at this point in the game, Tite had made a few changes. Fernandinho came in and Firmino had came in. And the second goal came from a ball won in the midfield by Fernandinho. And he quickly sprayed a ball out wide to Neymar, who carried the ball on the counterattack into the Mexican box and delivered a toe-poke finish that was saved with Ochoa's feet, but it landed right into the path of Firmino, who had followed the play. And he was able to to do what Gabriel Jesus hasn't done in four games with his first touch, which was score a goal. And for me, this is a big question because I'm a big fan of Firmino, and I would personally start him ahead of Jesus. I think that his hold-up player is much more better, and his overall contribution to the team is better. I mean, yes, Jesus does one thing in my opinion very well and that is on the defensive side he tracks back because I think if you look at Brazil's team you have somebody like Neymar who doesn't defend really so I think Tite kind of uses Jesus to defend and cover when Neymar doesn't but for me that's not enough I mean this is playing at the world stage with the best players in the world just being able to defend is not enough and for me out of a Brazil number nine he has to do more he has to contribute more in the attack now, Brazil's defense in this whole tournament, not just this game, but they have been playing extremely well. And for me, this Brazilian defense is, without a doubt, one of the best in the tournament. I would say, you know, them and Uruguay probably have the best defenses, of my opinion. Um, I would say the only potential weakness could be Fagner. You look at that right back spot. I mean, before the tournament, it was a big blow um, when we got the news that Danny Alves wasn't going to be fit, but... And then Danilo, of course, picked up a knock, I think, in the first game. But, you know, Fagner, you know, he was a, he was a bit shaky in the first 25 minutes. But, you know, by the end of the game, he had played a solid match. But besides that, I mean, you look at the two center backs, the experience that they both have um, and the ability. It's it's right up there with the very best. And then you have, you have Marcelo, who's been probably the best left back for the past decade at Real Madrid. And then Felipe Luis, who has played at Atletico for numerous amount of seasons. He went to Chelsea. Things didn't quite work out, but then he went back to Atletico and it's just been so consistent. And the thing I like about Felipe Luis is he doesn't have the attacking uh, contribution that Marcelo has. He doesn't have that skill set, but defensively, I mean, this guy knows how to defend and he makes that his utmost priority, which I think can sometimes be a good thing for Brazil. But I think going forward, um, Marcelo is definitely going to play in the quarterfinals because he should be fit. Now, I think when you look at this game overall, it was a really good performance from Brazil. I mean, the, the 20, first 25 minutes was definitely slow, but you have to remember that Brazil at the end of the game had a very comfortable win against a side that had beat Germany and a team that was kind of a surprise package. And for me, there's still so much more potential within this Brazilian team because they haven't even hit their, their peak really because... You know, they started off slowly against Switzerland and then I think progressively have been, come, been playing better and better. So hopefully that's a good thing for Brazil and uh, will help them, you know, reach the final and hopefully win the tournament. Um, 
One thing I also want to talk about is that I think when the Mexican players got tired, you could just see the, the difference in class. I mean, you saw William, you know, driving by players time in, time out, Neymar as well, and their class had really shown through. And for me, this Brazil team is a lot of different from teams in the past that Brazil has put out because, you know, this team is very comfortable defending and, you know, getting men behind the ball and being organized, which is a big credit to Tite because before him, this wasn't the case at all. I think if you look at the last World Cup, obviously they got slaughtered 7-1 by Germany. And yes, the personnel was different, but I think if you had a coach like Tite who had just brought that organization and defensive prowess, that would not have been the case. And that's something that I think, you know, the manager deserves a lot of credit for, obviously. And yeah, I mean, this is just a great Brazilian defense and hopefully they can keep riding with it. Now, one last thing I want to touch on during this game uh, was that incident between Neymar and Miguel Ayun. No, I did not forget about it. And I think it really needs addressing at this point because a lot of people were outraged on Twitter and social media, you know, calling Neymar all sorts of names. And yes, I know Neymar has this uh, reputation for exaggerating challenges when he gets stuck into, but, you know, I think people need to remember that this is a player who is coming into this World Cup off of the back of not playing for three months due to a broken bone in his foot. And most importantly, Layun did step on him. This is a fact. You can see it in the replay. Yes, with not a lot of force, I can accept that. And yes, Neymar did exaggerate it. But now because Neymar exaggerates the injury or the the step on that Layun did, you know, he's the enemy now in a lot of people's eyes. I do not get that at all. And one thing I really want people to go back in time and remember is go back four years ago into the 2014 World Cup. This is a guy who is the poster boy of the tournament at 22 years old, playing in his first World Cup in his home nation, you know, the biggest highlight of his career. You know, his, his nation is counting on him. And he was brutalized out of this World Cup by Colombia. Colombia, without a doubt, did a job on him. They played dirty, and they knew what they were doing. They targeted Neymar with aggressive challenges throughout the whole game. And you know what happened? They ended up breaking his back. And so for people to have the audacity to criticize Neymar, you know, it's completely arrogant in my opinion because, yes, I can understand he over-exaggerates challenges, but people need to remember this is because he's, he's been targeted throughout his career and injured in the most important tournaments of his life. So it's true. When you go back and think about what happened to Neymar four years ago, for a player to have their back done in and damaged by a team that was too overly aggressive with him, there's something wrong with that, without a doubt. And this should not be allowed or tolerated from the referees. Because if you think about it, Colombia said, all right, guys, if the ref's going to let us you know, get away with dirty challenges, let's really kick into Neymar and literally kick him out of the field. And they did. You know, They kicked him. They elbowed him. They need him in the back. I remember Zuniga had need him in the back and Neymar had damaged a bone in his back and therefore was out of the World Cup for the semifinal game against Germany. And, you know, I just want people to go back and remember this. And, you know, maybe this will change their opinion, maybe not. But that's just where I stand on the whole Neymar situation. And I want people to understand that.